and I think it would be an intellectual feast. Hey everyone, this is Leon from Fiasco and Prologue Projects. On this week's premium episode of 5 to 4, Peter, Rhiannon, and Michael are talking about Robert Bork. Bork is best known as a failed Reagan nominee to the Supreme Court. Democrats were joined by six Republicans in voting against his confirmation in 1987. The standard Republican line on Bork is that his experience before the Senate is the reason the Supreme Court became politicized, as if the lawmakers who voted against him were motivated by something other than his stated beliefs and his record as a legal thinker. But, as you'll hear, it wasn't really any more complicated than that. This is 5 to 4, a podcast about how much the Supreme Court sucks. Welcome to 5 to 4, where we dissect and analyze (laughs) the Supreme Court cases that have caused our rights to rot and decay like Robert Bork's putrid corpse. (laughs) I'm Peter. I'm here with Michael. Everybody. Oh my God, the start to this. And Rhiannon. Rhiannon, are you here? Let's get borked. Quick editor's note up top. This is a premium episode and we're giving you premium content. That's right. That means Michael has COVID. (laughs) Yeah, that's right. Congrats. Lucky listeners. Making him the second host uh, to record an episode of 5 to 4 with COVID. That's right. Redid it unvaccinated last year, which I think we have to admit is braver. Yeah. Um, but June 2020, baby. Yeah. Seeing as Michael will be coughing all throughout this, I think we should give everyone a heads up. You guys get to hear the sounds of it. <laughs> we would never do this for our non-premium audience, but we know that you, our hardcore fans, mm-hmm. they want to hear this, right? They, mm-hmm. You guys are here to listen to Michael be sick and you love it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Rhiannon, do you want to say what's going on with you? Um, I'll just say I'm I'm not a hundred percent sober for this recording. <laughs> yeah, I'm good leaving it there. Yeah, yeah. I will say when Rhiannon told me the exact way in which she was not sober, I said, "Oh shit." <laughs> <laughs> and I'm a normal person, so I'm just drinking. Okay. <laughs> now, sorry for that very on the nose metaphor, but it was a little bit last minute. It works. Today's episode is about the nomination to the Supreme Court of one Robert Bork. Every now and then, Republicans are forced to defend the endless shenanigans that they have engaged in with respect to Supreme Court nominations. Merrick Garland, Brett Kavanaugh, Amy Coney Barrett, etc. The more hackish types might try to pretend that there's a real rationale behind it. But if you ask the more ostensibly serious conservative thinkers, they'll all say the same thing. It started with Bork. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. What they mean is that Democrats started the politicization of the Supreme Court nomination process when they successfully voted down the nomination of Robert Bork in 1987. Bork was nominated to the Supreme Court by Reagan and following a contentious hearing in the Senate focused on his fringe right wing beliefs, his confirmation was rejected 58 to 42 with six Republicans joining the Democrats in voting no. Mm -hmm. In Bork... The right learned a couple of lessons. The first is that Supreme Court nominations are or can be a political battlefield. Right. The second is that they need to be very careful in how they talk about the law. Bork spent his career as an outspoken conservative lawyer. He opposed civil rights legislation and abortion. He was radically corporatist. And he was called out on all of that during the confirmation. Since then, 
Conservatives have been careful not to say too much in public, and they've learned how to mask their politics when they talk about the law. So come, let us tell you a story about one of the most (laughs) vile pieces of shit in modern history. (laughs) Re. Want to hit us with some Bork background? Yeah. Some, some Bork, Bork round? round? Yes. Oh. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so Bork, Robert Heron Bork. Middle name Heron. <laughs> I know that he was born in Pittsburgh. So is this something done in Pennsylvania? Peter, you get a bird middle name? Yeah. Like Peter Pelican Lawboy. Is that your full name? <laughs> that is my full name. <laughs> In Pennsylvania, it's a rite of passage to go bird hunting, and then you name your child after the first (laughs) bird that you successfully kill. Got it. Okay. That's a Pennsylvania thing. My middle name is Baby Blue Jay. (laughs) Stupid. So Robert Heron Bork, born in March 1927, Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Just a quick note up top, really important to Robert Bork's background. He is dead. He is Mm -hmm. not currently Mm -hmm. alive. Just the same way Scalia is dead. Identical. We think Allah just the same. Yep. So there's really not much to say about this dangerous dummy's like early life. He went to the University of Chicago for undergrad and for law school. He was married twice, has a few kids. One interesting thing, he converted to Catholicism in 2003, meaning he was 76 years old. (laughs) Um, Yeah, yeah, just kind of like strange tidbit. What kind of move is that? (laughs) That's the kind of move where you get a bad diagnosis and you're like, I got to really focus and pick the right God. Yeah. You know? Yeah, that's right. Uh Uh-huh. Which God will be most pleased with my horrific acts during life? Are Catholics the one where you can just like confess and it's absolved? Yeah. It helps. Yeah. Okay. (laughs) It's it's a layup at the end there. (laughs) That's right. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So I do want to note on my prep for background for this episode, I tried my hardest to get enough details about Robert Bork's birth so that I could do his birth chart, you know, give you his his moon sign, sun sign, rising, etc. I in fact, I went so far as to ask his grandson on Twitter what time of day Robert Bork was born. But I think that ended up spooking the grandson. (laughs) Can't imagine why. And we we only have unconfirmed information. Okay, so here's what I can tell you. Robert Bork is a Pisces. Mm. In my experience, Pisces, they like to do drugs. I think Robert Bork probably never did drugs because he was not cool. Mm. So that's what I have on Robert Bork. (laughs) Anyways, we can talk about his professional career. Um, That was the the best Zodiac ever done. Really like where you're going with these uh, sign readings. (laughs) Mm Mm-hmm. He did serve in the military and went to Korea during law school, actually. And after graduating from law school, again, at the University of Chicago, he went into private practice at the law firm Kirkland and Ellis. But he was only there for a couple of years before he takes a professor job at Yale Law School. Very smart, fancy boy, where he basically starts to go off about antitrust laws and his support for things like extreme total consolidation of power in the executive branch. Mm -hmm. Right, right. And, you know, we're going to talk about Bork's confirmation, but you can't really talk about Robert Bork and not discuss antitrust law because he is very much the father of modern American antitrust law, which makes him very much like the grandfather of modern America's economy. Yeah. So for the lay listener, antitrust law is – the law that governs monopolies and mergers and large 
firms in the marketplace and whether they're allowed to exist and in what forms. You know, the laws around this, when they were first passed in the 1880s or so, uh, the concern was people didn't really trust big businesses. Right. They were like, big business is bad, small businesses, those are good. That was pretty much the extent of it. You can you can read like the floor statements and stuff. Mm-hmm. But yeah, they were like, we don't want to be ruled by a king and we don't want to be ruled by the equivalent of a king in Standard Oil or whoever. Right, right. right. Now, early Supreme Court decisions like basically gutted this and paved the way for the first Gilded Age at the turn of the century. But after the Great Depression and the New Deal and FDR and all that, we had like sort of revived interest in antitrust that did a very good job of sort of like robustly preventing the consolidation of single or two large companies dominating markets. Right. This might sound a little boring. I'll get to the good stuff. (laughs) So what happens is Bork, like all the conservatives around this time, fucking hated this. (laughs) They hated the idea of like decentralized markets and mom and pop businesses And so he makes up this idea, like out of whole cloth, like out of nothing, that actually the antitrust laws are about consumer welfare and that, oh, people were really, you know, worried that the consumers in the 1880s wouldn't get a fair shake from big business. And that's why they passed the antitrust laws. This is a historical nonsense. That's like a level of economic literacy that like just didn't even exist in the 1880s, right? Like economics as a field didn't exist Mm -hmm. then. Right, right. So the idea of these like sort of more sophisticated ideas about the relationship between consumers and businesses, that just wasn't a thing. But more insidious than just like this intellectual dishonesty was like the policy effects of this, which is to turn antitrust on its head because- as many economists will tell you, and as Bork proclaimed, mergers and restraints on trade can actually benefit consumers because they can lower costs and improve services and and lead to improved products. And so what happens is this just paves the way for market consolidation. This paves the way for big, big business. Right. And paves the way for modern America, for the second Gilded Age, for the world we live in now. Right. And that is antitrust law today. Mm-hmm. And that's why we have massive firms like Google and Facebook and Walmart and Fox News and Sinclair Media and all these malevolent forces in American society. And setting aside the fact that it's not a given that these are good for consumers overall, the main problem with this is that it totally ignores the degree to which these companies distort our politics and their political power, which was the original animating concern behind our antitrust laws, right? So Robert Bork's scholarship like sort of paved the way for corporate ownership of America. Mm -hmm. That's who this piece of shit is. Right. So he, he first comes into like the public spotlight in 1963 when he wrote an article for the New Republic titled Civil Rights, a challenge. <laughs> Not the challenge that you naturally think. Like, no, no. How do we enact civil rights? No, right. no, 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 no. It's not that. The proper reading of this title is A Challenge to Civil Rights. Right. right. We are trying to challenge civil rights. Articulated by me, Robert Bork. Right. So, yeah, when we say Bork was a conservative, what we mean is he was a conservative by mid-century standards, right? Yes. Like, yeah. this yes. isn't like Reaganite, beacon on the hill, bootstrappy Republican rhetoric. 
this is that raw, you know? That good, good. This yeah. is, he's writing in opposition to the proposed Civil Rights Act. Mm-hmm. And he warned of, quote, the morals of the majority being self-righteously imposed on a minority. To be clear, the minority he's talking about is racist white people, not the black people <laughs> who are being denied service and employment due to their race. Oh, my God. Ugh. His argument is nothing particularly interesting. And I read this whole article on a Saturday night, guys. <laughs> he argues that private citizens should be allowed to discriminate because people should be allowed to associate with whomever they want. Right. The argument he makes is very literally and without exaggeration that racial prejudice is bad but denying people the right to exercise their racial prejudice is worse. Mm. Um, So, yeah, you know, Robert Bork's career ascends to prominence on the back of an explicit and public opposition to civil rights laws. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And, you know, he's not just kind of an academic and a judge, not just sort of starting his career by, like, writing about legal issues of the day. He was also a government crony of Fed, right? Mm -hmm. He worked as Solicitor General in the Department of Justice from 1973 to 1977. So note that this is the end of the Nixon administration and then into the Ford administration, Famously, very cool and normal time to be involved in U.S. (laughs) presidential politics. So in that role, Robert Bork argued many cases in front of the Supreme Court, including Milliken v. Bradley. We did an episode on this case pretty early on. It's basically about how Michigan could stop desegregating its public schools. But early on in his tenure as Solicitor General, Bork briefly becomes a little bit more of a household name based on his involvement in the Saturday Night Massacre, which was part of the fallout of the Watergate scandal during the Nixon administration. So if you haven't heard of the Saturday Night Massacre, just a quick rundown. President Nixon ordered the firing of special prosecutor Archibald Cox, who had been appointed to lead the investigation and prosecution of potential offenses by the president and his staff that were uncovered, you know, not just out of Watergate, but but out of the entire 1972 election. So one night in October 1973, Nixon, I'm sure, is like tearing around the White House. He's like tripping over shit and he's like snorting up every powder like substance he can get his nostrils on. And he's just raging. And he's like, I want the special prosecutor fired. And he orders his attorney general, Elliot Richardson, to do the firing. And Richardson resigns in protest, refuses to do it and resigns. Mm -hmm. Nixon then turns to the deputy AG, William Ruckelshaus, to fire Archibald Cox. And then Ruckelshaus resigns also. These are some principled motherfuckers. They're like, no, sir, Mr. President, you are acting a goddamn illegal fool. We are not going to do it. And so, you know, Nixon's a bull in a china shop. He's on a tirade. He can't be stopped. He goes to the number three official at the DOJ. One Robert Heron Bork to carry out the firing. Guess what Borky did? Do we think he refused to carry out the order <laughs> and resign? No. no, of course not. He fired that guy's ass. He said, I'm your guy. I'm your guy, Tricky Dick. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And it resulted in massive public backlash and the impeachment process against Nixon started 10 days later. Yeah. And that firing, by the way, was ruled uh, about a month later. It was ruled illegal by a federal judge. But yeah, Robert Bork did it. Got in there and did the damn thing. Mm-hmm. Right. 
I think we should say that after the Saturday Night Massacre for years, Robert Bork did say that he considered resigning as well and not carrying out the firing of Archibald Cox. But on the other hand, he defended his actions on the merits, right? Believed that it was the right thing to do, thought it was legal and went along with what Richard Nixon was telling him to do. Yeah, I was going to do the right thing, really was seriously thinking about doing the right thing. (laughs) Right. But also, even though I didn't, what I did was still good and correct. (laughs) I do think it's worth noting that like, okay, yeah, so a federal judge ruled it illegal. But (laughs) from Robert (laughs) Bork's perspective, what the fuck happened to uh, what? Elliot Richardson? Who the fuck is that? Right. 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 Ruckles House or is it Ruckles House or whatever? Mm -hmm. Nobody's ever heard of that dude either. Bork ended up on the federal courts as an appellate judge. Like he moved up in the world after this and was nominated to the Supreme Court, right? This was a launching pad for him. Right, yep. Yeah, really good point. That's how the conservative legal movement works. Boom. Just a reminder of of how shitty they are. Yeah. Yeah. I just wanted to give a fun little quote from a speech that Bork gave in 1971. Okay. I won't give you the prior context. Oh, going in wrong. Quote. I think there is no reason to doubt that President Nixon had ample constitutional authority to order the attack upon the sanctuaries in Cambodia seized by North Vietnamese and Viet Cong forces. Oh, okay. That's a legal endorsement of Richard Nixon's and Henry Kissinger's genocide in Cambodia. God. Just tossing that in there before we get to the nomination. (laughs) And we're skipping ahead now, right? Bork ends up being a federal judge for a bit, and then he gets nominated by President Reagan in 1987 to serve on the Supreme Court to replace Lewis Powell. And within an hour of Reagan announcing Bork as the nominee, Ted Kennedy, Senator Ted Kennedy, steps onto the Senate floor and he says this. Robert Bork's America is a land in which women would be forced into back alley abortions. Blacks would sit at segregated lunch counters Rogue police could break down citizens' doors in midnight raids, and school children could not be taught about evolution. Writers and artists would be censured at the whim of government. And the doors of the federal courts would be shut on the fingers of millions of citizens for whom the judiciary is and is often the only protector of the individual rights that are the heart of our democracy. This catches Reagan and company <laughs> off guard. They were not expecting this. That's right. Clearly, Kennedy was ready for this nomination. (laughs) And all of a sudden, it's a war. It's a fight for Bork's nomination. Yeah, that's right. So Joe Biden, Democrat, at the time in 1987, he is, of course, still a senator. He is the chairman of the Senate Judiciary Committee. And he's also at the time, I believe this is his first bid for president. He's just announced that he, I think, is considering running. Can we take a moment to appreciate just how old our president is? That he was (laughs) senior enough Uh in the Democratic Party to be chairman of the Judiciary Committee in 1987. Yeah. And running for president before I was born. 30 years ago. And I'm not like super young. 34 years ago. Yeah. God. Yeah. It's wild. <laughs> so like Peter said, the Democrats are ready. They're ready for this to be a fight. They do not want Bork confirmed to the Supreme Court to sort of solidify a conservative majority that had been coalescing there over the past, say, 15 years. And Bork is getting asked 
big, tough questions. You know, do we have a constitutional right to speak? Is there a right to abortion in the Constitution? Is there a generalized right to privacy in the Constitution? What do you think about Brown versus Board of Education? What do you think about the Civil Rights Act, right? Dude is getting hammered, but Bork famously disregards the advice of his team to keep his answers succinct. And he just starts fully answering all of the questions with like his full on (laughs) conservative quackery, like Mm -hmm. really meticulously answering all of these questions. He's being asked about his view on social issues, on civil rights. And he says stuff like, quote, as you may have noticed, I've been taking unpopular positions frequently in my life. At another point, when he's being asked about uh, social justice, a civil rights question, I believe, he says, quote, My opinion is that there are too many laws in this country and that we are redressing too many petty grievances. Yeah, that's the big problem in this country. <laughs> yeah, too many laws. <laughs> yeah. Too many laws and, and and our rights are too vindicated. <laughs> yeah. People have too much opportunity to vindicate their rights. <laughs> he also defended the poll tax mm-hmm. struck down famously in Harper v. Virginia in 1966. That's saying, right. Saying... Quote, it was just a dollar fifty cent poll tax <laughs> and said the court was wrong to strike it down. Oh my god. He I believe this was at his hearing, mentioned that he supports literacy tests for voting. Yeah. Or believes that they are constitutional. Right. So really miscalculating the political optics of what yes. saying his beliefs out loud would be. Right. Yeah, that's exactly right. And I think probably the biggest sign or what would be in the media, sort of the biggest symbol of Bork's missteps on the political optics were this what's known as his sort of like intellectual feast answer. So Republican Senator Simpson, during the confirmation hearings, he's trying to throw him an easy question kind of towards the end of one of the days where, you know, it's been hours and hours of kind of back and forth legal debate on the Senate floor. So Simpson tries to throw Bork an easy question. So he asks him, Judge Bork, why do you want to be on the Supreme Court? And Judge Bork says, quote, I think it would be an intellectual feast just to be there and read the briefs. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So simultaneously outing himself as like an aloof weirdo who like thinks of this stuff as all like an academic game. And also just right. a regular weirdo who uses the term intellectual feast. Yes. <laughs> right, yeah. right. Absolutely. Yeah. But also, you, you think that's a softball, but I guess when you've been sitting there telling everyone that your personal values are so repugnant, yeah. like, what's the good answer there? I've always wanted to get on the highest court of the land so I could make sure poll taxes are legal. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like, no, that's exactly, <laughs> no, <laughs> that's exactly right. I think it's actually like illuminating for the way he intellectually approached the work, right? Absolutely. Right. It shows that he's not thinking about the law or his role in adjudicating as something that affects real people. He doesn't see a judge as being somebody who, say, protects and expands civil rights, right? He just thinks it'd be fucking cool to, like, sit around and read the stupid shit that people send to the Supreme Court. Yeah. So, look, I mean, he says a bunch of batshit stuff in this hearing, and we don't have time to go over it all. But I want to say that it's pretty much canonical in conservative circles that Bork was treated unfairly. And the term Borked is now in common use as a verb. For when a nomination is scuttled, generally, like, unjustly, right? Right. Right. And what I've never seen is an actual example of a falsehood that was told about Bork during these hearings. Mm -hmm. Now, 
Republicans might have felt that like the rhetoric used by Democrats was too heated or whatever. But to say that he was maligned or defamed is just to rewrite history. He was a fringe right wing nutjob who was called out as exactly that, answered questions in a way that made it clear that that's what he was. Right. And that's that. Exactly. Period. And had he been just a little more diplomatic in his responses, he might have gotten those six Republicans to yeah. stay on his side and maybe even want a couple of Democrats. And he would it would have been sitting on the Supreme Court until his death. Right. Yeah. And the other thing is he wasn't filibustered. Right. The vote wasn't withheld. He had a full up and down vote and he just lost. Right. He just lost. That's right. Like, right. That's it. Like, yeah, people heard his views. They saw who he is and were like, no. Yeah. And why not? He was totally out of the mainstream. Right. You know, like it makes sense. That's the that's the fucking point. Right. Right. You know, a pretty simple game to play here is like what would have happened if Bork was confirmed? Mm -hmm. His seat ultimately goes to Anthony Kennedy, who is, of course, a conservative, one of the more moderate conservatives, but a conservative. And confirmed 97 to nothing. But lucky for us, Bork was pretty vocal about his thoughts about the Supreme Court. Right. And so we have a bunch of insight into like what he thought of the seminal cases of the next 30 years. And like spoiler alert, anytime there was a liberal win, he was aggressively opposed to it. Yeah. Aggressively opposed. Absolutely. Yeah. Roper v. Simmons, the case that held that executing juveniles was unconstitutional, he described as quote, a new low for the court. <laughs> what a piece of shit, dude. The case that outlawed executing children yeah. right. was a new low. Of course, he was opposed to uh, Planned Parenthood v. Casey and said that Roe should be overturned and that it was like, you know, a great blight and all, whatever fucking stupid shit that uh, right. know, melodramatic stuff he, w- he would say about that. Yeah. And in response to U.S. v. Virginia, also known as the VMI case, this is a case about whether or not women could be admitted to the Virginia Military Institute. Robert Bork wrote in First Things, which is a really conservative religious publication, that the court had used, quote, sterile feminist logic. Mm. The only kind of feminist logic there is sterile. Sterile. (laughs) Uh-huh. For some more baby-brained temper tantrum about VMI, I highly recommend people read Scalia's dissent mm-hmm. in VMI. Yeah. They're all just crying like babies over this. Yeah, they are. Yeah. Yeah. He was pretty angry about Lawrence v. Texas, of course, which found anti-sodomy laws unconstitutional. Right. And he wrote a book. <laughs> he wrote a book in 1996. Yes. Called Slouching towards Gomorrah. Yes. Whoa, biblical <laughs> reference. Now, first of all, <laughs> first of all, slouching towards Gomorrah is sort of a classic conservative tome, right? Mm-hmm. Like sure. the idea that society is decaying mm-hmm. and falling apart, these sort of abstract social norms that bind us all together right. mm-hmm. are being attacked by liberalism. And without them, Everything will unravel. Right? Right, right. Your children are in peril. Things will get more violent. The economy will get worse. Again, this is said in 1996. What happened after was 25 years of uh, relative economic prosperity, declining crime, etc. Right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, look, maybe things change as we get to the next 25. But uh... <laughs> so Peter said it's like a pretty classic conservative idea But it's hard to overstate how reactionary it was. 
Yeah. And I think the most extreme example of that is that he like makes the affirmative case for censorship. He's like, these First Amendment rights, fuck that. We need to start censoring people. Mm-hmm. And he says, any serious attempt to root out the worst in our popular culture may be doomed unless the judiciary comes to understand that the First Amendment was adopted for good reasons, and those reasons did not include the furtherance of radical personal autonomy. <laughs> Jesus. So <laughs> he says, this is the case for censorship, that we need right. to preserve a viable democracy. It's insane. He says, I am suggesting that censorship be considered for the most violent and sexually explicit material now on offer, starting with the obscene prose and pictures available on the internet, we would be censored in Robert Bork's America. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. Motion pictures that are rhapsodies to violence, Die Hard would be censored in, <laughs> in Robert Bork's America. And then the more degenerate lyrics of rap music. Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh my God. You got to get in the rap music. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Jesus. Look, he is like just not a First Amendment guy, right? Right. Um, right. Yeah. yeah. He, he just doesn't believe in he it. He once called the First Amendment, quote, a guarantor of moral chaos, uh, <laughs> as it was interpreted by the Supreme Court. Like, yeah. His whole thesis here is like if society starts tolerating a little bit of vulgarity. Right. Next thing you know, everything falls apart. You know, Rome's burning. Also in this book, he makes various bizarre and racist statements. He says that in modern universities, quote, courses are not offered on the cultures of China or India or Brazil or Nigeria, nor does the curriculum require the study of languages without which foreign cultures cannot be fully understood. Instead, the focus is on groups that allegedly have been subjected to oppression by American and Western civilization, homosexuals, American Indians, blacks, Hispanics, women, and so on. Uh, he did not need to include the list yeah <laughs> look i want to skip past the obvious implication that those groups are not oppressed and talk about the fact that he thinks that there are no courses about like china or india or right. brazil <laughs> i ever been to on a college campus <laughs> like maybe not when you went to school in fucking 1941 you fucking moron <laughs> yeah he says a bunch of incredibly homophobic shit mm. talks about the normalization of homosexuality yeah He says, if all traces of taint are removed, if homosexuality is made to seem normal, then young men and women uncertain of their sexuality will be that much more likely to be drawn into a homosexual lifestyle. So he thought it was important to maintain stigma around being gay. What is this book about? This guy who's like a pro-bullying queer kids right right pro-oppression straight up fascism yeah yeah no he's like yeah. totally authoritarian he said that like liberals are devious liars yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they can only get elected by lying right. right i mean suffice it to say bullet dodged right like thank mm-hmm. god right. he didn't get on the <laughs> yes. supreme court yeah. thank god this is the story of a failed confirmation right yeah. yeah it's like he's had one area of law where he's been very influential and it's been a fucking disaster for the country can you imagine if he had that influence over right, all right. the areas of law? It would have been yeah. right. awful. You know, the real truth of it is that had Robert Bork been confirmed, he would be the most conservative person to ever serve on the Supreme Court to this day. For I agree. Sure. Okay. Yeah. Like, that's the scope mm-hmm. of the issue you were dealing with, with the nomination of Robert Bork. 
Yeah. And so even though it is a failed confirmation, the Republicans don't win, don't get their pick on the Supreme Court in Robert Bork's nomination, that failure really by the party to get what they wanted, that affects now our Supreme Court nominations and the confirmation process today. Right. So Mitch McConnell, then a young senator at the time, was so mad at the way that Joe Biden and Ted Kennedy and the Democrats on the Judiciary Committee had basically asked normal questions of Robert Bork. He said that the failed Bork nomination created, quote, a new Senate standard. And he vowed on the Senate floor, Mitch McConnell did, to fight every Democratic nominee in the future with the same dirty political tactics he says that Joe Biden, Ted Kennedy and the rest of them had used. And we know that he took that vow and that grudge very seriously because he's still talking about it today, right? He's Mm -hmm. still talking about that Republicans have to secure their Supreme Court pick wins in order for them to secure their policy goals. Yeah. You know, Bork is viewed by the right as the original sin in the confirmation. Wars, exactly. Right? Democrats yeah. threw down the gauntlet and started aggressively opposing court nominations. That narrative is very popular on the right. And it was perpetuated by Bork himself, who yes. wrote about the ordeal in another book in 1990, where he said that, quote, The politics of personal destruction are an invention of the Democratic Party, unquote. (laughs) This is a guy who worked for Nixon. 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 He fired somebody. On top of the fact that he's implying (laughs) that the politics of like character assassination started in 1987. Right. Not like whenever the fuck B.C. they actually started. (laughs) (laughs) This fucking dude worked for Richard Nixon. Right. And helped him fire a special prosecutor. Right. Right. Which, again, was because he was spying on his political opponents. Right. Right? That was the substance of it. He was spying (laughs) on his political opponents. And, by the way, like, lived through the McCarthy era. (laughs) Just the level of hostility towards reality that this guy has is wild. Right. Now, you know, in some ways to conservatives, Bork is just like an excuse. Right. He's just something that lets them feel like they have the license to politicize the court to the extent that they do. But I think he also lingers in their minds because the rejection of Bork reflects a turning point for American conservatives where they had to stop saying what they really believed out loud. Right. Mm -hmm. He said that Bork answered the questions presented to him relatively honestly. Right. And he paid for it. He represents the retreat of conservatives' true selves into the shadows and the rise of dog whistles and euphemism and question dodging as the primary speaking voice of the right. That's exactly Uh, right. What followed Bork was the ascendance of rhetoric designed to hide politics behind a veil of legal doctrines. Mm -hmm. You can see it in confirmation hearings now, where not only is nothing of substance said and every question dodged, but the prospective justices often have fairly pristine records because they've known their whole careers that if they ever want a chance to sit on the Supreme Court, they need to be careful about what they publicly say and write. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, you know, and it, this was also like in the early days of conservative organizing around the courts, right? And it's, I think, one way to think of it is that the, this is their first setback, yes, right? And they, they, I think, up to this point, were like, okay, we get the numbers, and then we get to place the judges, and we get to place who we want, and then we get to do what we want with the courts, mm-hmm. right? And this was like the first time that sort of their approach ran against like the political reality that like hey, it's still politicians who are answerable to voters who have to make these decisions, right? Yeah. And you can't just yeah. be totally repugnant 
as a human being and expect that to happen. And I think that sort of loss stings, right? And is viewed as like an unfair roadblock to their path to power. Yeah. I do think in their mind it is. It is unfair that they're like, we won. We should be able to have Robert Bork on the court and fuck them if they don't like it. Right. That's right. their attitude. Yes. So, I mean, look, the party comes completely differently, more well prepared for the next big controversial confirmation process, which was with Clarence Thomas. Right. So <laughs> they learn the lesson after that and get it together. Yeah. yeah. And, right. And they hold the line in that. Right. Nomination. Exactly. Yeah. And there's a point I want to make about the like the Thomas hearings and the Kavanaugh hearings in this, mm-hmm. because Bork is challenged for his jurisprudence and his politics. Yeah. Thomas and Kavanaugh were challenged on their character and allegations about specific behavior, right? Right. Mm-hmm. And if you're saying that you think that those allegations were fictionalized or whatever, I think you're insane. But there's like an internal logic there, right? right. right. But if you're saying you can't vote against someone on the merits and you can't vote against them based on their character, then what are the valid reasons for rejecting a nominee. Right. Exactly. Right? Right. Yeah. Like Republicans don't have a coherent answer to this. Their only concern is just identifying these grievances so that they can nurture their victim complex and justify their own malfeasance around judicial nominations moving forward. Right. That's right. right. That's right. This is like the the plainest, simplest way that someone could get voted down, right? That's right. Everyone hears your politics and thoughts on the law and they're like, no. Yeah. <laughs> not right for the job. Yeah. We're gonna vote this down. And like None of the narratives that the right pushes about Bork hold up under any scrutiny. He wasn't the sign of a Democratic Party that would like stop at nothing to halt Republican appointments. Right. right. His nomination is sandwiched by two unanimous Republican appointments in That's Scalia right. and Kennedy. He's also not the first justice rejected on the merits. Right. Nixon had two appointees rejected by vote. Johnson had his appointment of Abe Fortas to chief justice scuttled by Republicans. Mm-hmm. Eisenhower initially couldn't get Harlan out of committee. This goes back forever. Sure. Herbert Hoover had a nomination rejected in like 1930. So Bork's not an anomaly. Right. What he was was a symbol that the conservative legal project, Michael, like you were saying, hit a snag. Right. And, you know, when Nixon was elected, he made it explicit that he was looking to undo the work of the Warren court, especially on matters of criminal justice. Right. right. He ran this law and order campaign and the Warren court had built out criminal defendants rights. Nixon's also behind a hit job investigation into Abe Fortas. Mm-hmm. You know, he's ultimately pressured into resigning despite like pretty middling evidence of any wrongdoing. And then the 70s are the beginnings of a legal academic revolution on the right that we've discussed uh, quite a bit that carries into the next decade. And Reagan begins to target originalists with his nominations for the court, elevates Rehnquist to chief justice, appoints Scalia and nominates Bork, all of which is to point out that the Bork hearings are portrayed by the right as like an unprecedented action by the Democrats. Right. What it was in reality was a reaction to Republicans aggressive focus on the court, which at this point had been a 20-year project to reverse the liberal wins of the Warren era, right? I mean, the framing of it is completely backwards. Right. Yeah. And not only was it like the seeming capstone of this 20-year project, but it was one that had like wandered far afield of the political mainstream, right? Like Mm -hmm. they had totally, totally lost the plot with what is (laughs) is an acceptable, even within their own caucus, Right. Right. Like that's the reality of it is that they were like their own insular little group, not in touch with the political realities that this guy was toxic. Right. Mm -hmm. Right. 
Yeah, and I I think we're going to see how this plays out again. Because, like, yes, this court is not quite as far to the right as Bork was. But that's the lowest of bars. Mm -hmm. And they are way far to the right of the American public. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And the real question here is, do they have the institutional power and the sort of, like, rhetorical sleight of hand developed since Bork? To actually protect what they've built here right. in a meaningful way. And do the justices have the self-awareness to moderate themselves to avoid like provoking too much backlash? Mm-hmm. I don't think they do, personally. No, I agree. I agree. And I think the last thing we should say is that Bork is one of the fucking weirdest looking dudes. Yes. <laughs> he wore like <laughs> almost like mutton chop sideburns. Um, yeah, almost. And then also to evidence his narcissism a little bit. Like, I Googled his books, and he's on the cover of all of them. Mm -hmm. Looking like a fucking weirdo. Right. That's something that you know when you look like that, your publisher and you got in a fight about. You had to hold (laughs) your ground for, like, weeks on end, right? Where they were like, Robert, we got to get you off this cover. You look like Shipro. And he was like, people are going to want to see me. Trust me. (laughs) That kind of self-confidence, man. That is aspirational. I mean, look, when your books just get bought up by fucking conservative organizations and then (laughs) shuffled out to churches or whatever by the pallet, who cares? By the way, I listened to a podcast where his son spoke about this and the podcast was recorded in like 2020. Mm -hmm. And when I tell you this guy is still so fucking mad, (laughs) (laughs) so mad, so mad. That's awesome. Just like pure like you can tell that there is no way that he could be this angry if this wasn't a dinner table conversation like up until his death where he was just complaining about it Mm -hmm. for years it felt genuinely cathartic to listen to i would not recommend the podcast which was absolute trash but uh it was funny to me to listen to how what a fucking loser (laughs) (laughs) next week we are taking the week off because it's thanksgiving I feel like we deserve it. Yeah. So, you know. Yeah. You do too, yeah. listeners. Yeah. yeah. You don't have to. You don't have to listen. <laughs> I mean, every week. Week in and week out. Isn't it depressing? It's a, it's a little much. <laughs> it's yeah. a lot. Just pay us the money and you just fuck off. You know, you don't have to do it. <laughs> Hit that annual subscribe button and just zone out. <laughs> we'll be back after the holiday with Town of Greece v. Galloway, a case about prayer during legislative sessions yeah follow us on twitter at five four pod thank you for subscribing we like you very much thank you thank you we love you so much happy thanksgiving we give thanks for you five to four is presented by prologue projects this episode was produced by rachel ward with editorial support from leon nafok and andrew parsons Our artwork is by Teddy Blanks at Chips NY, and our theme song is by Spatial Relations. (laughs) Bree's just drooling like, we give thanks to you. Seriously, though, yes. (laughs) No, it's serious, but I just, Bree just felt barred out as shit. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) Can I please hit stop? (laughs) (laughs) I'm stopping. I'm stopping.